Welcome to Let's Get Writing, the podcast that explores the creative process of writing from books, scripts, plays, and poems to songs and blogs. This series focuses on authors, publishers, and artists. Catherine's guests share their process of writing in all its forms. Listen along to discover personal journeys behind their work, explore options from indie to traditional publishing, and learn tips and secrets to inspire you. Welcome to Let's Get Writing. Welcome to Let's Get Writing. I'm your host, Katherine Taylor. Let's Get Writing is all about the writing process from creation to publication. And here is where we share the stories behind the stories and bring life to books. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel at Katherine Taylor TV and we'll keep you informed of all our new episodes. My guest this week is the author of one book of poetry called Soak, and also of two nonfiction books, Rock, Paper, Sex, The Oldest Profession in Canada's Oldest City, and most recently, Rock, Paper, Sex, Volume 2, Trigger Warning. Both books are published by Breakwater Books, and her exhaustive research into the sex trade industry in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador is shedding new light on a very controversial subject. Join me in welcoming Carrie Cull to Let's Get Writing and I'll bring her right up in the screen. Welcome, Carrie. Hi, thank you, Catherine. How are you? Good. And you are in the oldest city in Canada, St. Yes, John's. I am. And I'm in central Newfoundland, Grand Falls, Windsor. So it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, yes, we're here to talk about your most recent book, Rocks, Paper, Sex, Volume 2, Trigger Warning. But I think we'll also be touching up on the first book um, as well. And But the first question that came to my mind, Carrie, was Rock, Paper, Sex. Where did you get this title? Mm-hmm. Well, the title, uh, I had come up with a number of titles uh, for the first book, and I was going back and forth uh, between quite a few. And then I wanted to really uh, make reference to The Rock, Newfoundland and Labrador. You know, Newfoundland is known as The Rock, so I really want to make sure that was in there. Um, this is not a book about sex work and human trafficking across Canada. This is about Newfoundland and Labrador, St. John's area particularly. So I wanted to make reference to The Rock. Paper is a euphemism for money and, of course, the sex part. And you covered it all in there. I just put the images up while you were talking, and I'm just going to pull that down now and uh, see more of you. There we go. So... Um, Two books. You started, I believe it was uh, in 20, was it 2017 or about, or maybe a little longer when you started writing these books? Yeah, so I started uh, the research for volume one in 2014, the fall of 2014. Um, and it took about three years to the date for publication of that. So from the idea to actual book in hand, about three years. And then I started writing the second volume. Um, late 20 or early 2018 i think and uh yeah it took, it took three or four years for that one as well so i started uh uh 
Rock, Paper, Sex, Volume 1, I was actually inspired to do that. I went to a writer's retreat and um, the facilitator, I was there for fiction at the, at the time, but I went to a writer's retreat and the the writer, uh, the facilitator, Gerard Collins is his name. He's a fantastic writer. Um, he has a, a number of books out as well as an award-winning author. And he, he gave me and the other participants some really good advice. And he said, you know, write about what provokes you write about what you have strong feelings about or write about what you have questions about and at the same time uh in the news in st john's there were uh news articles about uh, sex workers being gang raped at downtown hotels and so i was thinking about that and i was very angry about that and and thinking about what these these people had gone through and i started to you know uh invoke all of these feelings in me and questions. So I took that idea and that, uh, that interest in that subject and, and ran with it at that time. And now we're here two two books later. Two books later. And I can imagine, and the reason I wanted to talk about both books is because I would think the first book might've been the most challenging to write, given that you were out of the gate on this subject, which a lot of people don't even want to acknowledge, let alone research and your approach is unique in that you approach the workers and you have to to well they have to allow you to tell their stories yeah so perhaps you can talk a little bit about that that process you had the idea mm -hmm. and then you know how did you begin yeah so um i didn't have a plan when i began the research uh for the first book it was just write read everything that i possibly could from all over the world government documents books you know whatever i can get my hands on uh and then i just put a call out for interviews so i did that in a number of ways i uh put an ad up on nl adult saying you know i am a woman looking to research the sex industry in st john's i'm looking for all kinds of stories. Uh, if you are someone who wants to talk to me, please, you know, uh, you know, email me here. So I, I did that a couple times throughout the research process for the first book. I put up old school paper posters in strip club bathrooms. Uh, I, I went about it in a number of different ways. Uh, the second book, the research was very, very different because I had learned from the mistakes that I had made in the first book. Um, but also I, you know, from the first book coming out and then you know when i was writing the the second book i had a lot of connections made at that point a lot of experiences under my belt in regards to developing relationships with people who are in the sex trade or uh, people who have who are survivors of human trafficking i had done a lot more learning in various ways um talking to people informally learning formally uh and um i really applied all of that to the second book so the writing of the second book was much easier. Mm -hmm. You had already established relationships, I guess, but yeah. the, the trust element, because it, typically people working in that industry are, are you know, are not inclined to open up to mm -hmm. anyone. Um, how did you develop that trust? What did, how did you reassure them to, you know, yeah. talk People ask me that quite a bit and I don't really have a definitive answer for that. Um, all I can say is that, you know, when I was uh, soliciting people for interviews or when people were approaching me, asking me about my my project, I was just always completely honest about it. Um, and I didn't try to push anybody. So, for instance, if I sensed that someone was a, a little nervous about 
contributing or participating or talking to me ultimately a stranger who could do anything with their story or this information or you know out them leak their identity that sort of stuff um i really gave people multiple multiple outs to not participate i i didn't try to to pressure anyone um and I, I never would want someone to participate in a project like this if they if they felt pressured so you know some really some of the stories came really easily in that people were just really happy to finally tell their story in a way where they could re remain anonymous but they could still have their honest story out there in the world because a lot of these individuals have never told their story before and not even i don't even mean publicly i mean like to no one in their lives right so being able to do that was was huge for for some of them and then you know some others just wanted to uh it was more of a cathartic thing for them um helping with their um with their recovery um taking some of their power back so there's different reasons why people participated and um when it comes to the trust factor you know i had a few people ask me if i was a cop and you know, no, obviously I, I said, no, I, my God, I'm not a cop. Um, I mean, I am interested in the, le the legal frameworks and so on around these sorts of, of, of topics, but I, I'm definitely, you know, not, not anyone uh, that's involved with the regulatory body. And people also asked me if I was a journalist, um, not a journalist. So th those were some typical questions that I got. And I think if I had been affiliated with you know, a bigger media company or something like that, I don't think it would have been any, as easy for me to get these uh these people to participate but i think once they realized that i was just a woman who was coming at it from a storytelling perspective as someone who was interested in women's stories and empowering women to use their voices in various ways to to educate people and i think that that was one of the the things that really uh spoke to people and they realized that okay this is just a regular person who's interested in my story and wants to help me tell it for a myriad of reasons that i'm okay with yeah, absolutely. And I guess you were entrusted with telling the story the right way. Yeah. And you mentioned to me that once you you transcribed or created these stories, that they could still have a voice in that, that they yes. had to prove it. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that process, uh, so the first time I did that process for the first book, I went about it all wrong in that I would do an interview, then I would transcribe the interview and then I would wait like a year to write the story which was a really really horrible idea because I wanted to go back to these participants and give them the opportunity to edit their stories and of course I wanted everybody to uh, give consent to have their story published and so on and make sure that they were represented the way that they wanted to be represented so you can only imagine now if you you know gave an interview two years ago about something deeply personal and then someone sends you this email like, oh, here's your story quoting you from two years ago. Of course, you would probably want to edit that. You may not even want to participate anymore, things like that. So I, I had a, a host of, of things like that come up. So when I did the second book, I learned from that. What I did was I really um, spent time on one story at a time. So I would do the interview. I would do the transcription as quickly as possible. And 
then I would write the story and I would liaise with that participant uh, very, very soon after they, that after we did the interview. And I would usually be communicating with them in that interim anyway, just to make sure that they were okay and they were still feeling good about the process and being involved. But uh, yeah, I definitely learned from that mistake from the first one and I corrected it in the second one and it made for a way easier and more efficient uh, interview transcription writing process. Mm, a good tip for anyone thinking about a project of this nature. Yes. Yeah. Are interviewing and getting commentary from people. Things change. And particularly, I would say, in that industry, mm -hmm. um, there would be a lot of change. You mentioned earlier how, um, you know, telling the story was a big step for people because many of these people don't even tell their own families mm -hmm. that they're involved. Um, so it's, it's something to um, bring out would be a big step for them. And uh, so I, I've learned a lot by reading the book and that that's one of my questions. What did you expect people to take from this book? What was, what, what is your hope? Well, um, with, with the first book, I just wanted to shed light on stories that affect women and kind of just get people talking about issues that I think should be normalized. Um, and I think that that certainly happened with the first book. After the first book, you know, you could hear people talking about sex work and human trafficking, like in, in forums where you wouldn't normally hear people talk about those sorts of things. And then what I saw later was that uh, conversations were starting to be normalized around other topics that, yes, you know, that this might be a book about sex work and human trafficking, but it's also a book about consent and harm reduction and uh, intimate partner violence and equality and feminism and motherhood and all of these other things. So I feel that uh, the book has really helped normalize these sorts of conversations around dinner tables between couples um, and, and all of that. And maybe not pleasant conversations sometimes, but mm -hmm. has definitely uh, provoked some of those conversations that I think are necessary for us to learn and grow uh, together. Um, but I think um, if I if I had to say, you know, a goal, what I wanted people to get out of these books is uh, just in regards to the way that uh, society and the laws treat um, sex workers, and also all the stigma that's attached to uh, all of the different uh, things that can happen to people who are involved in this industry and survivors of human tra trafficking. There's a lot of stigma and, and shame and guilt and all of these things. So that's kind of what I want uh, to shed a light on a little bit more of is to educate people on what that's like for individuals. And also so that, you know, uh, when laws are being written and legislation is being written around these topics, that there is another resource out there uh, that is built on the voices of people with experience that can be referenced. Because I feel like when we are um, writing laws, uh, when it comes to how to protect women and minorities, uh, when it comes to sex work, when it comes to uh, human trafficking, all of that, I feel like we really need to listen to the people of experience. And those voices are the ones that should uh, be most prominent in the decision making process. And which are absent, most often absent from any decision making process around yeah. that. And I think quite often people don't want to talk about these issues, maybe from a place of ignorance or, or lack of understanding. And I, I think your books help educate 
um, certainly bring information to people, a place where they can say, okay, this is from the perspective of people who are in this industry. And once you understand that, it's easier to ask questions. It's easier to bring forth a position. Um, but also, um, am I correct in saying, I mean, you, you mentioned human trafficking, you've mentioned the sex trade, but they are too, are they not, I guess they're intertwined. There's just no mm -hmm. way. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm trying to sort that out because there are people who choose to go into this, that, that it is the career that they want. They're very comfortable and very mm -hmm. happy working in it. And then there are the people who are brought into sexual slavery, mm -hmm. uh, don't have choices, who, you know, who are, are being trafficked. So how do we understand this in making any decisions? And, mm -hmm. and this you know, is confusing. This is, this is the big, the big thing, right? This is why, a lot of people have problems with the laws that currently exist is because, you know, those, those, let's say two things, just to make it very kind of clear to understand, obviously it's, it's very muddy and fuzzy the way that these, these, uh, these things intersect, but just, just for clarity purposes, you know, if you're talking about someone who is a sex worker by choice on one end of it and someone who is, a victim or survivor of human trafficking on another, their stories are often vastly, vastly different in many, many ways, but there is that really wide intersection there somewhere along the way. And it is very, very hard to, um, for me personally, I mean, I can't speak for everybody and everyone has their own opinions about this, but for me talking to all of these different people, um, you know, women, trans trans people, um, you know, men, like talking to all these different people who have been involved in some way. Um, it's very, it's very hard to come down on one side or the other for me. Like I really think about this in regards to the individual and, you know, and when I'm talking to someone, I am fully engaged and immersed in their story in a way that you know, makes me fully immersed and engaged in the way that they're thinking about it and their opinions and their feelings. Right. Um, so when it comes to those two kind of opposing spaces of the same world, it is very difficult to navigate. And if it's very difficult to navigate uh, for someone like me, who's done so much research and talked to so many people, and I have friends on both sides, I have friends who are survivors of human trafficking. I have friends who are independent sex workers. So it is extremely hard for me to balance uh, balance those conflicting spaces. Um, I will say that there is, or there seems to be, uh, definitely a line throughout the all of the people and most of the people that I interviewed in that you know everyone feels that there is not enough being done to protect uh, victims of human trafficking. There's not enough being done in regards to services to help people, um, not just in Newfoundland and Labrador, but across Canada as well. And um, also that the people in my book, the local people who, people who I've interviewed, they almost without almost without question i can't even think i'm just trying to go through all of them now there's been a lot of people that i've talked to but i think i can safely say that most of the people that i interviewed um they believe that this is the type of work that should not have a boss so um that is definitely one of the the, the defining themes that are coming out of these voices is that it should be something that someone uh is wholly responsible for and independent of themselves they should be able to sell services the way they want well way they want to sell them 
and they should be in control of their body and their money, and it should not be controlled by anybody else. Mm, that's, that's interesting um, to hear that because there are parlors and mm -hmm. massage parlors and places like that where people work. And my first instinct is to think, well, it would be safer mm -hmm. in an environment like that because you're not alone and somebody knows where you are and who you're mm -hmm. with and there's some tracking for who goes in and out. Um, so to hear that they would prefer the, the independence is, is interesting. I probably would well, some people, some people feel that working in a massage parlor is that would still count as independent. Um, and they wouldn't consider the person that runs the massage parlor to be a pimp or anything like that. Um, so, and, and in a lot of cases, the massage parlor atmosphere is safer than other options. It depends on the individual and their circumstance and what their needs are. Mm -hmm. And when, when we, uh, I see that in many instances, a lot of uh, the stories people have mentioned that if I had to work at a minimum wage job, I would barely survive where in this industry, I actually can have a decent standard of living and time to do things I want to do. In fact, some of the stories were people who were going through university and that this was a way for them to, to fund it. So I'm not sure that people think about the, these things, that there is a financial need. And when you talk mainly about women, and that can become a bigger issue um, in the world today, how women can support themselves mm -hmm. and um, live. The world is increasingly expensive as we know after COVID and, uh, or during COVID, I guess I, I shouldn't jump ahead too far, but you know, it, it, it's a, a, the way that they can earn a living where they can survive and it keeps what did you what do you feel about that? Do you, yeah, I mean, I feel like, um, you know, if you think about, I just think about, you know, when I was, you know, traveling, and I was in Ireland, and I went to the Kilmainham jail there and did the tour, like a lot of people do. And, you know, there's stories there about back in the Great Famine, um, men were leaving their wives and their children because they couldn't provide for their families. So women had to resort to sex work at that time to feed their children. And that was kind of the one thing a woman could do then to make money to feed her children. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, 150 years ago or whatnot, right? So I feel like if we have a problem, a moral problem with, with, you know, someone making the choice to sell their own sexual services, we really have to take a deeper look at the systemic problems um, that revolve around women and equality and pay equity and all of these things that have that that only now are being talked about in any sort of real and and honest way. But this has been something obviously that's been going on for many, many years. And it's a systemic problem that I don't think um, is just about sex work. Sex work might be the result, but I think it's it's a there's a host of um, other historical and political things that have culminated to this this particular right. point. Yeah. And it and, and it's always been with us. I know your book primarily primarily talks about women, but we do know that men are also involved. Are men involved, you know, as sex workers, is it a much smaller number or portion? It seems to, to be that way. From what I gather, it definitely seems to be that way. Just it, it's just like the majority of buyers are men, the majority of sellers are women. Um, there are definitely a lot of trans sellers. Uh, as well. Uh, so 
there, there, there's a, a lot of different, different kinds of people who, who are selling sex work. It's mostly men that are purchasing from what I gather. Mm-hmm. And um, also in the book, there was a, one story where an actual, from the point of view of a wife who had discovered mm-hmm. her husband had this whole other life in which he was very much a participant in the sex trade. Yes. Uh, and she discovered that and had to learn to live with that. So there's a lot of perspectives in your in your books mm. to open your eyes. And one of the things that I think is very important for us to mention, the subtitle on this book, Trigger Point. Trigger and, warning. Or trigger, trigger warning. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first things I said to you, well, you know, why is that on the cover? And I think mm. we should. We should address that why it is yeah yeah sure so a couple reasons why i chose trigger warning um for that subtitle and one was because i did not put a trigger warning on my first book and i should have so i wanted to make sure that i did not make that same mistake you know kind of a blatant throwback to the mistake and one of the mistakes of the first book um and then uh another reason why i did it is because my book does need a trigger warning there are some very graphic stories in there and some very graphic parts of stories. So some of the stories are, are, are funny and lighthearted. You know, there are a bunch that are kind of right in the middle. And then there are some that are very dark. So the book definitely needs to be approached um, with some discretion. And like I say in the introduction, this book is not for everybody. Maybe you shouldn't read it, right? Because there there is that very a heavy, dark mental part of it that is not for everybody. So it definitely does need a trigger warning. And I do have a mental health crisis line information peppered throughout, throughout the book for anyone who is uh, in need of some guidance when they're, when they're, you know, thinking about all of this. Um, Another reason why I call it trigger warning is because I just kind of wanted to make a tongue in cheek reference to the fact that that phrase is used a lot right now and very flippantly. And I don't know if, everybody understands what trigger warning what a trigger warning actually is used for um so a trigger warning i think sometimes people use a trigger warning to say that something is you know very offensive or uh or i don't know very very graphic or or something like that but um something that is triggering to me is not necessarily triggering to you right so for instance as someone who has not been sexually assaulted there, you know, I'm not going to be, I don't have a trauma brain to go back to or a place in my mind, a place in my brain that, that is trauma bound. If I'm reading something like that, yes, I might find it very hard to read and very emotional, but I'm not going to be triggered to a place of trauma. Whereas someone who has been sexually assaulted, they may be triggered and they will go back to that trauma, trauma place in their brain. And that may affect them very deeply and and in a very big way for for who knows how long so i just kind of wanted to put a trigger warning on the cover to draw attention to that so people can learn more about what a trigger warning actually is yeah a, a good idea with a book like this also in the book before we before we we, we wrap blue door you volunteer mm. this organization and maybe people don't know what this organization is so i'd like you right. to 
explain that to people. I would love to talk about Blue Door. Yeah, so there are a lot of different services in St. John's uh, that helps sex workers and that helps women who are involved in the sex trade, whether they are independent sex workers or survivors of human trafficking and everything in between. Um, Blue, Door is a, it, Blue Door is one that I've had a very close relationship with over the past couple of years. I've done, uh, I've done vol- uh, writing courses or volunteer writing programs with the participants that I loved and um, uh, I have developed relationships with a lot of the a lot of the women there, a lot of the participants there. Um, and what Blue Door does is they help uh, people who have been exploited. They help uh, people who are victims of sexual exploitation. They help them move away from the industry. And that is a very long, complex, complicated process, as you can imagine, for an individual, depending on the variety of factors that are in play there. Um, Unfortunately, uh, Blue Door, the program is coming to an end soon. Uh, they they got five years of, of funding from the federal government, and that is now ending actually today, I believe. So this is very timely that we're doing this. And uh, they have put calls out to uh, the provincial and federal government to see if they can get more funding, and no one has returned that call yet. Um, I think that uh, they're really hoping to get a little bit of funding to keep going. But as of right now, those doors are closing as of Monday. So it's very, very sad, actually, because they do they do provide a very important service to people in Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, thank you, Carrie, so much for sharing the information and um, talking to me about your books. I'm glad you wrote them. I think you've opened a lot of minds and for maybe doors um, to to this topic. And I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you, Catherine. I appreciate it. Thank you. And for folks who are watching, thank you so much for joining us. All the shows are available on Catherine Taylor TV on YouTube. Have a great day and we'll see you again next week. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. So please let us know what you thought of this episode and share your ideas for future guests or topics. You can email us at letsgetwriting at katherinetaylor.ca. Don't forget to subscribe and even leave a review. And if you love this episode, share it with a friend. Until next time, believe in yourself and let's get writing.